Every afternoon as a church, we seek to go to the basics of the Christian faith, the Reformed faith as we find it summarized in our confessions. And so we turn this afternoon to Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 4, that's on page 520 of your book of praise. And we read there the following lesson. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, He will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. As He has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe that is with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So far from the Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the first words of the text that we read together from Romans 1 tell us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Most people would not actually agree with that, however. A few years ago, the National Post did a study showing that more than half of Canadians believe in heaven, but less than a third of them believe in hell. Now we can ask, where where does that idea come from? Where do people get that notion? Well, chances are most of them have never reasoned it out, but it's simply a comfortable belief to have. And among that third of Canadians that do believe in hell because they've seen enough evil in this world to know that there must be a hell, even they, most of them, are not convinced that they are bad enough to go to hell. Most people, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking to so-called religious people with spotless track records or college students on campus or inmates at the local prison, most people who believe in hell still think that it's for people that are, to some degree or another, worse than themselves. So they would say something like, well, hey, I'm not perfect, but after all, who is? I don't think God would send me to hell because there are people that are way worse than me. Hell is for those people. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit this thinking does creep into the church. But again, where, where do we get this idea from that there, if there is a hell, it's for people that are worse than ourselves? What makes anyone think that we qualify as average people or slightly better than average people and that God would only send worse people than us to hell? It's amazing, but the truth is most people are willing to believe that simply because it's a comfortable belief to have without ever once consulting Scripture to see what Scripture says about that because they don't like the idea of a God that puts a price 
on our sin. But then, of course, we should ask ourselves, well, how often does reality ever correspond to what we like? Can we make something true simply by wishing that it were so? Can you remove a debt by wishing that it wasn't there? Well, of course not. The answer is obviously no. But then what do we stand to gain by deceiving ourselves on something this important? In any case, our text is clear. It tells us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, according to Scripture, God makes no exceptions. He's not grading on a curve. He will punish all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He puts a price on all sin. So this afternoon also I preach to you the Word of God as we summarize it also in our catechism with the following theme, in His justice, God punishes sin. And we'll see first that He has every right to punish it. And then we'll look honestly at the biblical truth that He most certainly will punish it. And finally, we'll see that because of His justice, He has to punish it. And this is, of course, a very heavy and difficult topic, but we will certainly end with some words of hope. Well, let's deal first with this idea that that, hey, nobody's perfect, which is to say God can't expect me to be perfect either, and he can't punish me if I fail to be perfect from time to time. That's the same idea that the catechism gets at with the question, does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? If nobody lives up to that standard, then is it really fair for God to punish me for failing to meet that standard? Well, again, we know that God will. Our text is clear enough about that. He will punish all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But the question is, is it right for God to punish me or to hold us to a standard that nobody lives up to? Well, Scripture teaches that it is right for God to do so. He refuses to make exceptions for us because by nature, He made us able to keep all of his law. Adam and Eve, they were created in God's image. If you read through the first chapters of Genesis 1, you hear the repeated refrain that the creation was very good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, we could get into a philosophical discussion about where did sin come from? Where did evil come from? Where do my evil choices come from? What happens inside my will when I will to do something evil? But ultimately, those kind of questions don't matter because it's criminals that ask those kinds of questions. How can I make myself the victim here? How can I blame someone else for the choices that I've made? But that kind of reason does no one any good on the final day before God's God's throne of judgment. He is not mocked by people that would make themselves victims. So what we need to understand from Scripture is that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they were perfectly able to resist his temptations, to say no to the lies that he told them. But when they followed Satan's advice, they did so out of their own free will. They deliberately chose to go against God's commandments. And so they allowed evil into their own hearts, and it corrupted their entire nature. 
And so now here we find ourselves, their descendants, born with that same nature that has been permanently corrupted by sin. Sinners now beget sinners, one generation after another. So when we say that, hey, well, nobody's perfect, what we're doing then is saying that God is going to have to change his standard because I can't live up to it. And that is a big assumption and a wrong assumption. Evil is still evil. God will not and God cannot call it anything different, even if all of creation has been sold to do it. What's more, when we say, well, nobody's perfect, we make our sin out to be something smaller than it really is. Or when we say, well, well, hey, I was born this way, we're claiming that our sin is somehow different than the sin of Adam and Eve. As if, well, they chose to sin, but hey, we can't help it. And that's simply not true. Like Adam and Eve, we know what is right, and we choose not to do it. That's what Paul also emphasizes in in Romans 1, verse 21. He says, because although they, and here he's talking about all humanity, so we could also say we, although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in our thoughts, and our foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, we knew the right thing to do, and we chose not to do it. And so if our consciences now aren't as functional as they were when they were created, it's only because we've caused them to become calloused and hardened to sin. So we fail to gain anything by blaming our first parents, Adam and Eve. What is right is as plain to us as it was to them. And just like them, we ourselves choose to not do what is right and to do instead what is wrong. We can point to the origin of our sinfulness and blame them for starting this cycle, but it doesn't do anything to take our sinfulness away or to make us any less offensive before God. And indeed, we can know this even from experience. Most criminals, most abusers, most drug traffickers, most negligent parents, you can name the sin, they can all point to some influence that led them to become the way that they were. Bullies are often bullied at home. Abusers themselves were often once abused. Drug traffickers are often pressured into joining these gangs. But none of that ever takes away their own guilt. And we can see Adam and Eve using the same kind of excuse if we look at Genesis 3. Adam, well, he blames Eve for his sin. And in a sense, he's right. Eve rather, did deceive Adam when she told him to eat of the fruit. And she, in turn, then points to Satan, and to a degree she's also right. Satan did deceive her, and yet all three made a deliberate decision to sin against God, and God punishes all three of them. All three are cursed for their sin. So we, too, we can blame Adam and Eve or our parents or someone else for our sinfulness, but it doesn't gain us anything because God didn't make us that way. And so every time we sin, we make the same choice as Adam and Eve, and we are held accountable just as they were. Yes, it's true, we've become addicted to sin as part of the human race. Yes, it's true that our natures are profoundly corrupted, but it doesn't mean that our choices aren't ours anymore. If we acknowledge Adam and Eve's guilt, 
well, then we must acknowledge also our own guilt. So Paul, when he describes the condition of of humanity and of the world today, he doesn't focus on some philosophical discussion about where evil came from, but he talks about what's the world like today? What's our condition today? And he describes that in verse 28 and following. It says, even though they did not even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled, and now think this is us today, this is humanity all around the world today, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, Whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and the list goes on and on. That's what the human race is today, and we don't gain anything by blaming someone else for making us that way. We know, Paul says at the very end of chapter 1, we know the righteous judgment of God that those who do such things deserve death, and yet we not only approve of them, or we not only do them, but we even approve of those who practice them. So the excuse then that, well, nobody's perfect, it holds no water at all. It makes no difference that nobody is perfect. We all know what is right, and we all choose not to do it. No matter who sinned first for things to end up the way that they are, What matters before God is that the human race is profoundly sinful in His sight. No matter how many others then commit the same sins, we have to answer to God for the sins that we commit. He's not going to lower His perfect standards simply because we can't meet them. He has every right to punish sin, and He will punish sin. And that's our second point, that God certainly will punish sin. And the truth is, most of us, to some degree, already know that. Even unbelievers know that. When they encounter horrible injustice, they speak of karma, or they speak of some ethereal concept of of justice, that people will ultimately get what they deserve. We can do this when we see other people's sins, and yet we're also experts at failing to see this when it comes to our own sin. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. We know that God will judge and that certain sins deserve God's punishment in the afterlife. The entire human race knows this. And yet, Paul says in verse 3, do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and yet doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. God's word is deeply incisive. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know exactly what Paul is talking about. We demonstrate all the time that we know perfectly well that there is a moral right and a moral wrong. Certain things are wrong all the time, objectively so. And so every time we stand and condemn someone else, we stand as witnesses that there is a right and a wrong and that we are not at all in charge of those categories. And yet, isn't it so true that we so often act as if we are above the law? When it comes to us, well, then we assume the role of lawmaker and judge and jury. And then there are a thousand reasons we can think of why God shouldn't punish our sins. 
Such foolish people we can be to think that we can acquit ourselves before God's holy throne. Who are we to assume that our opinions will count for anything in God's court? We forget we're only mere men, as Paul reminds us in verse 3. Who do you think you are, O man? We don't make the law. It's made already, and we are under it. So Paul asks us again in verse 3, Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and yet doing the very same, that you will escape the judgment of God? No, we will not. There is no appeals court in God's throne room. His judgments are already perfectly just. He doesn't need our opinions to nuance them. So the point is this. Unless we can accustom ourselves now already in this life to silencing ourselves before God's law, we will find ourselves on the last day being silenced by Him as we futilely offer our opinions about why He shouldn't punish us. To live that way now is only to store up wrath for the final day when His righteous judgments are revealed. And God's wrath, according to Scripture, is terrible indeed. It's as terrible as it is eternal. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus, who talks more about hell than anyone else in the entire Bible, he tells us that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them, he says, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Elsewhere, the Lord Jesus describes hell as an experience of outer darkness, utter loneliness and distance from God and other people. In Revelation, it's described as so terrible that everyone facing it will long for death, for rocks to fall on them and crush them. And in yet another place, it's compared to a lake of fire. That's the honest biblical picture of hell, of God's wrath. And moreover, it is eternal Jesus warns his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your eye causes you to sin, he says, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Yet again in Revelation we read that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. No notion at all that anyone can ever pay their way out. No end to the suffering. After endless years, it's only the beginning. That's the honest view of God's wrath against sin, which he tells us about in his own word. Scripture is not at all unclear or ambiguous on this topic. This is the just and righteous judgment of God against sin, and we're to be assured that it will come as a result of our sin. God's word is not at all ambiguous. He leaves it abundantly clear so that all sinners would be warned. So as our catechism also teaches us, he's terribly angry with our original sins as well as our actual sins and will punish them with, both, with a just judgment both now and eternally. Because of his justice, he will not allow this disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished. And this is our third point, that God has to punish sin. 
It's something that many of us have asked ourselves, why does God have to punish sin? Since the judgment is so terrible, so horrible and eternal, why can't God simply overlook it? The answer has to do with God's justice. His justice, it's one of his his, uh, essential attributes, which is to say it's part of who he is and he cannot act against his justice without violating his own very character. We can sense something of this because we ourselves are made in God's image. We know then that it would be wrong to leave violence and abuse unpunished or to refuse to punish a rapist or a murderer. We're made in God's image and so it violates our own human dignity to leave these things unpunished. And so as we have seen Paul saying, we know the judgment of God is right, is according to truth against people that practice such things. We know that such things are not just a relative evil that, as we saw this morning, what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you, and it doesn't matter. But no, these are objective realities. Evil is objectively wrong, always wrong, and what is right is always right. And yet at the same time, after the fall into sin, our human natures and our sense of God's justice have been profoundly corrupted. We don't want to walk around all the time knowing that God has a price on our sin. And so instead, then everyone considers that God would only punish people that are really bad, somewhere worse than themselves, and that it wouldn't be appropriate for God to punish their sin. It's part of what Paul refers to in Romans 1, verse 18, when he talks about men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So we recognize that absolute evil, those horrible sins in other people, and yet we fail to see them in ourselves. Like almost any criminal that's ever been convicted, we insist that the punishment is undeserved or it's disproportionate to the crime. Well, it's only natural that we feel that way because we are the ones who are to be punished. As sinners ourselves and due recipients of God's punishment, We have a deeply biased sense of justice. But like any criminal, we are hardly in a position to question God's righteous judgment. But then let's push the question further, just for the sake of argument. Is the punishment disproportionate to the crime? Is an eternity of suffering an appropriate punishment for a lifetime of godlessness and wickedness? Well, the only answer we can find in Scripture is yes, It is an appropriate punishment. We've seen already God has declared that sin is deserving of eternal punishment. And here's the thing. His is the only opinion that actually counts. Not only is he the creator, so he has the right to make that decision, but he's the only one who's innocent of sin. He's the only one who doesn't have a biased view of sin. As fallen human beings, we're no longer sensitized to the seriousness of sin committed against the majesty of God. He tells us that it's worthy of eternal death. And we can either resist that and attempt to correct God's judgment with our own three-pound fallen brains, or we can submit to God's word and accept what he teaches in his word. And then if we do, we can also look for a way out of that judgment. And that's how we'll finish this afternoon's sermon. What will we do with the knowledge of God's wrath, the knowledge that he has set a price on every one of our sins? 
where there's only one thing we can do, and that is to look earnestly to God for a way to be reconciled. Scripture is clear about God's wrath, but it's equally clear about the fact that Christ bore the full wrath of God for our sins so that we would be restored to Him. So everyone then who honestly acknowledges God's righteous judgments against him or her may also look to him as the Savior who extends mercy to us. But that does, that does mean that we must admit God's righteous judgment against us. If we aren't able to submit to those judgments, if we aren't able to admit his righteousness in condemning us, or if we hold reservations or, or counter-arguments in our hearts just in case we might need them, then biblically speaking, we cannot yet say that we have repented. We cannot possibly claim to be trusting in his mercy. Instead, our response should be like David's response in Psalm 51. He says, Against you, against you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. That should be our confession as well. Repentance begins in acknowledging God's righteous judgments against us. We can't believe in Christ and at the same time have reservations about God's justice, about hell, about whether we deserve God's wrath. We can't believe in Christ and at the same time be unwilling to confess to God that you would be absolutely right if you were to condemn us, to send us into hell and leave us there forever. So the way to God's mercy begins in an honest acknowledgement of his justice in his righteousness. But if we do acknowledge our sins and his righteousness in condemning us, then we may also turn to Christ. And he has promised so clearly in Scripture that anyone who turns to him in honest repentance and trust will not face the wrath that they deserve because he has already gone there in our place and paid that full price. So he calls to us in John 7, verse 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, and there he means thirsting after eternal life in the face of every reason to believe that we shouldn't get it, if anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink, says the Lord Jesus. And he promises us in that same chapter, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. As the Apostle John also writes in 1 John 1, if we claim we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He continues, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So let us also, this afternoon again, put our trust and put our hope in that one eternal sacrifice, the one way to the Father. Because we know that in Him, all His promises are yes and amen. They are true and sure. And in Him is all the righteousness that we could ever need. All whom the Father gives will come to Him. And whoever comes to Him, He will never, ever cast out. Amen.